Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session, on the road edition. I'm joined by Dr. Jeffrey Bien. Dr. Bien is a fellow in hematology oncology at Stanford University, and he was the chief resident at OHSU, where our paths cross for better or worse. We're talking about the new paper, first-line nivolumab plus chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone for advanced gastric gastroesophageal junction or esophageal adenocarcinoma, checkmate 649. Jeff, it's great to see you again. Thanks for having me. Long-time uh, listener, first-time caller. First-time caller. Well, maybe last time, call it. <laughs> Depends on how it goes. Okay, so you've presented this paper before at your resident journal club. Is that fair yeah, to say? Our, in our fellowship journal club uh, a couple months ago after the, before the manuscript came out, after the presentation at ESMO 2020. I see. That's a tough time to present because there's not a lot of data available. Yeah, you just kind of go by what the slides they present and what they choose to present. And uh, you're working off of a lot of um, bare bones data. But the FDA found it... Um, reliable enough to issue an approval, and so I figured it was good enough to discuss in our journal club. That's good. Well, this is the same FDA that approves Alzheimer's drugs that don't work, so, you know, it doesn't mean much these days. Yeah, we can, <laughs> we, we can talk. We can get to that. <laughs> okay, let's talk about Checkmate 649. So what do you want to tell listeners? What do they need to know about this trial? So um, this, is a, this is an upfront metastatic uh, trial that combines chemotherapy and uh, immunotherapy in metastatic or advanced gastroesophageal, esophageal adenocarcinoma, or gastric cancer. So three um, upper GI cancers that have a pretty pretty poor outlook in general. Okay. And uh, the standard of care, I guess, at the time of this study was what, Jeff? So the, s- the standard of care before this uh, approval most recently was for a platinum doublet uh, containing uh, regimen, usually Fulfox, or uh, capsidabine and platin. Um, previously, we would use something like a triplet regimen, like EOX or something like that. But uh, in recent years, the um, the epirubicin has been dropped, probably mm-hmm. because of excess to- toxicity. People don't like epirubicin. Yeah. It was. We found that it was hurting people more than it was helping in this setting. Has that stopped oncologists before? <laughs> okay. All right. So I see. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, yeah, Fulfox or Zelox is what we use, uh, common practice. And what about if you were to progress on that, what would you get in, in the standard of care prior to the study? So the standard of care in prior to this study, um, it, this is a pretty bad disease area. So, you know, up until probably the mid-2010s, people were debating whether or not there was even a role for second-line or third-line therapy in this setting. Um, There's a couple of meta-analysis that showed that you could eke out a little bit of survival benefit 
uh, second line therapy is generally something like ramucirumab and, and uh, taxol. Rainbow, and, uh, rainbow trial. Rainbow trial, and that showed some benefit. And then in 2017, there was an approval for immunotherapy in the third line setting that was approved in the U.S. And that was accompanied by another trial, the Attraction 2 trial in that was conducted in Asia that showed that there was a benefit in the second line uh, with um, immunotherapy as well in the in later lines. Okay, so so I think that's that's a good summary. That's where we were at the time of Checkmate 649. Oh yeah, and there's always lawn surf. Oh, lawn surf, my favorite jug. Uh, trifluridine tip of uracil. Yep, mouthful. Mouthful. So you just call it lawn surf. Okay, so what else do you think listeners should know before you jump into this paper? I think that I want to make it clear before we talk about this paper that I am... This is a, this is a nasty disease, and I'm, I'm all for treatments that improve the patient experience and the patient outcome in this disease. Um, it's the landscape, as you know, as we've talked about, is a pretty, uh, a pretty barren one beforehand. So it was a, very, a field that's very ripe for some therapy to come along and really improve the patient experience. But I think that if the landscape is barren, you have to think about before you approve new drugs, why has it been so difficult to improve survival and improve patient outcomes in this in this setting? That's well put. Okay, so that's a great background. Checkmate six four nine. Obviously you can rattle off the first six, four, eight checkmates right off the top, <laughs> right off the top of your have index cards for that. Of course. Yeah. We, it's either a keynote or a checkmate. <laughs> All right. Uh, or an impassion or an empower or an imbrave. Uh, these are, these are the kind of the nomenclature. Don't in this the javelins. Oh, the javelins, right. Javelin, this javelin, that, but at least javelin, they put the tissue type in it. Bladder, That's true. javelin, you know, <laughs> anyway. Um, okay. So what's next to know? What's next about this study? So, this, this is a, um, just for a little bit of background, this approval that was made by the FDA in April of 2021, uh, I think surprised a lot of people. And the reason was that the FDA issued an approval that was agnostic for CPS, or the uh, composite positive score for pdl one status, which um, was not the primary aim of this trial. And arguably wasn't demonstrated in this trial, and we can delve into the details of that here. But um, at the end of the day, this is something that starts to become quite uh, deep of a rabbit hole, and we can get into as, as much as you want. But um, I, I worry that it, it might start to confuse your you know, average clinicians, pathologists, everybody else in the community, some of the nomenclature that's used here, some of the differences in technique that they use here, and probably will in future trials um, start to get very complicated and, and difficult to interpret. And so I want to, I want to, I guess, start out by just really briefly going over the difference between TPS and CPS and how that's evolved during the con- conduct uh, during the way this trial was conducted, and also um, what it means for the future. Okay, good. But so, what you, but but just to summarize, what yeah. you're, with the teaser you're giving us. Uh-huh is that everyone says, we just need a biomarker, we just need a biomarker. Right. Right. Here comes a biomarker, the composite positive score, the right. CPS. Yeah. And what you're saying is the FDA says, we're not gonna look at that biomarker, we're just gonna give the blanket approval exactly. in this whole tissue type. Exactly, so so for all of the discussion about precision oncology and you know issuing treatments towards patients that would stand to benefit from a certain treatment, um, we went around that and just issued it to everybody. And maybe, you know, the argument is that you're putting the decision in the hands of a clinician, but we all know that that's, that's probably not going to be what ends up happening. It's precision oncology 
but it's imprecise profits. Impre- that's what I <laughs> imprecise profits, and that's what, okay. All right, good. So now tell me, what is the difference between TPS and CPS? So um, just as a refresher for everybody, your TPS is the tumor proportion score for a uh, given tumor type. So that's the amount of PDL1 expression on tumor cells specifically. So in terms of gastric cancer, for example, if you take a, a biopsy, you look at it under a microscope, you do some staining, you look at, you count up all of the gastric adenocarcinoma cells that are expressing the particular receptor, and you divide that over the denominator. So it's a percentage. The CPS score is a composite proportion score, and that is actually an, the the combination of tumor cells plus the immune you know, the immune cells, the, the, the milieu around the tumor itself that expresses that particular receptor. So in this case, it's not actually a percentage, it's a number, because you could go, theoretically, you could go over 100. I see. Right? If you have a 90% tumor expression plus a bunch of immune cells, it would be, it would be quite a high uh, number. Interesting. So okay. the, the way that this has affected the upper GI space in particular is that uh, over the past three to four years, which is when this trial happened to be conducted, the field has moved away from TPS being a good marker for or good predictor for response and has moved towards CPS as a uh, as an appropriate indicator that somebody might respond from preferred biomarker. Correct. Okay. So when this trial was initially proposed, they uh, proposed it using TPS as a biomarker and they actually stratified patients using their tumor portion score. Uh, on their first enrollment of the trial. They amended the trial halfway through to um, analyze them using CPS, which I don't really begrudge them for because that was what the data was showing at the time, but it ends up giving us a little bit of a confusing picture. Um, There's a few other things to add about this. Each different company, BMS, um, uh, Merck, etc., each company uses a different antibody marker for their particular drug of choice in order to characterize the CPS or TPS. And in this case, the antibody that's used has never before been used for CPS scoring. And um, it's not clear whether or not there's a good concordance with the other antibody that's used for CPS scoring in the past. And beyond that, uh, the pathologists aren't gonna know which antibody to use specifically to score, to give somebody a CPS score so that you can make a decision on it. I see, so does Stanford use the same antibody as in this study? Stanford does not right now. I see, interesting. So what you're saying is, like all great biomarkers and analyses of studies, we have a few axes of degrees of freedom. Mm-hmm. We got a TPS, we got a CPS, mm-hmm. and we got at least three different antibodies at stain. Correct. All right, Yeah. that sounds like a mess. The, both the antibodies, the 23, 22C3 antibody and the 28.8 antibody are both made by the same company, the DACO Agilent company. One happens to be licensed by Merck for pembrolizumab and one happens to be licensed by um, BMS for, for nivolumab. Uh, but as far as I can tell, they're, I think they're the same, but, but no one can really give me a straight answer, and I've, I've talked to people at Agilent and BMS about this. Wow, okay. Well, you're really getting to the bottom. I like it. Yeah, I, I said we can, we can chase this, uh, go down this rabbit hole as far as you want. I want to go down all the way <laughs> to CPS zero. <laughs> okay. okay, go on. All right, so that's good to know. So um, the, the last thing I would say is that there's a little bit of confusion about uh, upper GI cancer histologies. You have your esophageal cancers, you have your esophageal junction cancers, and you have your gastric cancers. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's a lot of cross-mixing, I would say, between trials. Mm-hmm. For example, the most recent uh, key, um, Checkmate 
577 trial um, includes both histologies of esophageal cancer, whereas this trial, for example, only includes adenocarcinoma. No squames. No squames. And I actually think that this is a good decision on the part of the trial sponsor because, as far as I can understand, the kind of genomic and epigenetic um, landscape of adenocarcinomas in esophageal, EGJ, and gastric cancers are more similar than they are dissimilar when compared to when you add in squames. If anything, I'd say squames respond better to immunotherapy. Totally. Agreed. All right. And if you have TMB high through the roof, all the better. Yeah, all the better. All right, go on. So, So this is all to say that um, this may be a confusing space to watch in the future as different trials compare, uh, combine and, and slice and dice different histologies in the upper GI space trying to eke out a benefit of their particular drug of choice. In this case, I think that um, they, they picked a good population, all adenocarcinomas. I see. But and how low in the stomach do they go? That's another thing, a big debate. Oh, that's a good point. Um, upper, G, upper stomach? Or? I, think they, I think they took the entire stomach okay. as, a, as a whole. Uh, but I, I'm not sure. Someone can write in about that if they... Yeah, if listeners. Uh, okay, this is interesting. I want to do my study, PEMBRO plus standard of care versus standard of care, any cancer below the neck. What do you uh. think? <laughs> <laughs> any cancer below the neck. I bet, uh, I bet Merck would fund that pretty yeah, quickly. of course. Of course. Okay, go on. This is good. This is all good information. Um, so I think... Uh, now, what's the th- study th- that's the, yeah. So that's we talked about study design. Yeah. That's the background. So this is a, a one-to-one randomization, open-label trial uh, of, like we said, Nevo plus chemo against chemotherapy alone. Um, they had pretty good numbers in this trial. They had about 790 patients in each arm. And um, they, they talk about how they included 29 countries. Um, so it was a quote-unquote global study, global if you know studies. what I mean. Yeah, we'll find out um, what they mean, yeah. Uh, the, the important thing for me and the thing that was interesting was the proportion of countries that are from Asia or patients that are from Asia um, because there, there may be a difference in the underlying biology and or you know, screening practices or uh, upfront treatment practices that may make a difference. And so in this case, um, there's 25% uh, Asian patients that are enrolled. Um, and we, we think about that when we think about generalizability for our patients here in the U.S. Are you we're allowed to about... say this anymore? I thought that, <laughs> I thought it's taboo to talk about racial differences in cancer. <laughs> well, it's recorded in their uh, table one. It is. And I think <laughs> historically in GI malignancies, people have long said that Correct. outcomes are different Correct. in Asia. Yeah. And they are speculation that biology is slightly different. Correct, yeah. Um, there, there is there's a, a study about um, comparing genomic studies by the TCGA here and uh, in a there's an Asian cancer registry also and, what? and there are different mutations uh, looking at slight there, there's looks like there's some d- differences in mutations Interesting. okay that's important to know 29 global countries oh the one thing you left out was it's one to one to one correct yeah Ipping. oh yeah, yeah I was gonna talk about that okay so uh, interestingly here there they they have a third kind of a secret third arm that's that good. for which there are they're not even whispers about the preliminary results whether they're positive or negative or they had to scrap the whole thing, uh, no one knows, as far as I know. Uh, and if you read through the manuscript, it actually looks like they recruited that arm first. And so I, I would have expected them to report something about that already. So I'm not really sure exactly what, what's going on there, but there is a third arm that's still been blinded, and I guess we're waiting to hear uh, a presentation about that. Well, that's interesting. Um, but that's a combination of IPI plus NEVO against the chemotherapy-only arm. Um, and even if you look for the supplement in this for this paper, they, there's a lot of it that's blacked out, which I, I'm guessing discusses the ipinevo rationale. I see. But I guess one thing that I'm curious about is you said that it was recruiting first, so they preferentially were recruiting ipinevo. Yeah, it looks like they did a uh, maybe they added in this 
if this Nevo plus chemo arm later, later based on toxicity, maybe mm, then, I, I, I well, can't speculate. We can't speculate. Yeah. Yeah, dare not speculate. But here's the question: Then is the chemo arm of this study and the Nevo chemo arm contemporary enrollment, or did the chemo arm actually precede it? I I could not understand that based on how I interpreted the manuscript. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe somebody maybe somebody can can find that information too the way that it looked like i was curious about if they recruited two chemo arms basically i see right um, right and or then or if yeah. they just had one and then they kind of used it for both against both i, I can't i can't get that out of the manuscript okay i want to make a point here a side point uh okay there, there there's lots of talk these days in oncology about adaptive randomization so as one arm does better you randomize more to that arm mm. um that's a strategy that people think will minimize the number of people exposed to the control arm but it has a deep, deep problem, as Boris Friedlander and Ed Korn have reported, which is that imagine there is a secular trend in mortality over time, that outcomes are getting better just over time. If you have a randomized trial that alters the randomization ratio over time, what happens is more people in later years are put on the good arm mm-hmm. and less people in earlier years, proportionately, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. And so what that means is some of the difference in the good arm is the secular trend. Right. So it would be really important, and I think some listener will look into this and tell me, if they are comparing Nevo chemo to chemo who are contemporary yeah. or attacking some chemo people who are earlier, which right. may have some decrement. You see what I'm getting yeah, at? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Go on. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, we could, I, I'm tempted to give them the benefit of the doubt in this trial. It's, um, it, you know, it's, they only started recruitment in 2017, 2018 or something like that. And, um, so that gives them only about two years to, to recruit 700, 800 patients and they call it a one to one to one. And I'll, I'll take them at face value okay. there as opposed to one to two to one, for okay. example. Um, but but that's that's the that's the basic setup. They have a they only recruited performance status of zero or one, <coughs> ECOG, which, um, as some of your listeners might know, is actually quite difficult to find in, in some of these patients, um, people who present with metastatic uh, gastric cancer, esophageal gastric cancer, um, usually uh, feel pretty poorly pretty quickly. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, okay. And then they, they did some funny things with the endpoints um, that will become relevant when we talk about the FDA approval. Their primary endpoint is the overall survival and PFS in the CPS greater than five population. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have a bunch of secondary endpoints that includes the OS and PFS in the greater than one, CPS greater than one, in all comers, uh, CPS agnostic, and they also include a CPS greater than 10 in their kind of pre-specified endpoints. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's interesting because mm -hmm. the stratification factor for randomization was CPS over one. Right. Below or minus one. TPS. So TPS. TPS. They stratified by TPS. Oh. Because that's how they set up the trial, because that's in 2017, that's what we thought was going to be the main way that you could predict benefit. This is a trial that I want to audit not just the statistical analysis plan at publication, right. but the history of statistical analysis right. plan. Yeah. And I'm going to penalize them for every little switch along the way because something, some, they've switched it. They, they must have switched they, it. There's a lot of amendments, and I actually went through the uh, clinicaltrials.gov, and you can look at all the amendments that they made over time. And what does it look like? Um, and it's, you know, I, I, I don't, I can't begrudge them for changing some of the things based on what the most recent science says mm-hmm. at the time. It's like your Facebook profile. It's heavily, re- <laughs> heavily redacted <laughs> and re-edited, huh? Heavily re-edited, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's like a Wikipedia page, basically. Um, but it's, uh, it is interesting to see how uh, the thought process evolves even over a three- to four-year period um, when you're conducting a major trial like this. Okay, all right. That's a nice way to put it. Um, so... The, the other couple things that I noticed about the design of the trial, one thing is that they evaluated patients in the first year uh, with interval scans every six weeks with a CT or MRI. Um, and then after that, they did scans every 12 weeks. And then um, they say that 38% of patients overall went on to get secondary treatment. 
and of those, um, in the chemotherapy only arm, eight percent were uh, got Im- immunotherapy in later lines. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! I knew that. I knew that get a reaction for you, but oh. we'll do, we'll talk about that as uh, as part of the the. Uh, discussion later. Okay, I just um, want to add one thing. Somebody's gonna say they're gonna say, "Oh, well, we all know gastric cancer patients, thirty-eight percent getting second line therapy. That's really good. Like, mm-hmm. it's not lightweight in real life." And I'll say, "But you've cherry picked yeah. ECOG zeros in yeah. one. Yeah. You've cherry picked." And I'll and I'll also invite them to look at the Attraction Four study, which uh, came out at the exact same time, and it was conducted in Asia, in which sixty percent of patients went on to get second line therapy. Well, that's interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. I see. Talk about that data. Um, so we talked about the the secret third arm. We talked about the uh, TPS score stratification um, and the uh, uh, end primary endpoint analysis um, uh, changing uh, a CPS versus TPS. Yeah, that, those are the things I wanted to cover in the design. Okay. Oh, that was an excellent summary. This is what I like to see. See, Deep I always, dive. D- you know, I like to say, you know, I always, when I give those lectures on how to read papers, my point isn't, um, you can't read all the papers, but when you do read a paper, you sure shit better read it the way Jeff is reading it, because I want to get to the bottom of it. <laughs> well, right. I think a lot of these papers, you know, the top line is very impressive, and it's very exciting to see that this is, uh, they're reporting overall survival results, um, as we'll talk about, that are greater than one year for the first time in this population. Um, and the way that they've set it up and described it sounds really good. Uh, the, the medical writers really knew what they were doing. <laughs> Sorry, just to... Yeah, but, yeah, um, but, you know, when you're, when you're evaluating this in the context of your patients and, and wanting to um, do the best for them, you really have to think about uh, what the standard of care arm really looked like, what the other patients did, how the other patients did, and what you would have done in, a, in, in the same clinical setting. That's exactly right. You can't let yourself be bamboozled by the medical writer. <laughs> So, so the results here, um, overall survival results were, were quite striking. They were good. So they showed that for the, the CPS greater than five population, which if you remember is the primary endpoint, they had a 14.4 month versus 11.1 month uh, overall survival. And like I said, that's greater than a year for the first time in this population mm-hmm. um, in the U.S. at least. An improvement in median OS of 3.3 months. 3.3 months. You know. What's that hazard ratio? 0.7? Uh, 0.71. 0.71. Yep. I would say that um, you know you can cite that paper by Foho and colleagues that mm-hmm. looked at 71 consecutive solid tumors. The median was 2.1 months, so 3.3 above average. Yeah, yeah. It's an it, above average I cancer give, drug. I give them a thumbs up for that. You know, listeners who aren't oncologists will know that you've, in your course of your fellowship, you've actually become an oncologist. Where you three months survival benefit, you're saying that's <laughs> that's a real benefit. Yeah, yeah. I uh, would I would be excited to tell. Um, well, you know. Listen. You want more. Yeah. If you take a step back and you think about it, being able to tell a patient when they first walk into your clinic who is a performance status of zero or one that they have, on average, a year left to live is a disappointing experience. Um, And nevertheless, when you're reading these top-line results, the oncologists are going to be excited to talk about this. And I think that's because we've tried so hard and it's been hard to improve exactly in this in this population in particular and i actually don't know the answer to this but i bet if you took a medicare data set of people with this cancer getting Mm -hmm. initial treatment Mm -hmm. i bet the median survival in medicare data is probably five months i bet it's way worse than academic setting like this yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. all right um so we talked about cps greater than five and cps greater than one they also showed an overall survival benefit with a hazard ratio of 0.77 14 months 11.3 months Mm. and then in all cps comers they also were able to show this uh benefit 13.8 compared to 11.7 months and what's the hazard ratio 0.8. 0.8. Okay, so the hazard ratio goes from 0.71 to mm-hmm. 0.77 to 0.8. Yep. And what they're not telling you is that this is a uh, this is a nested subgroup analysis. Right. 
and I like adjacent. Yes. And we have a new paper coming, Sonny Kim and I. Yeah. It's going to come. It's called Nested versus Adjacent Subgroup Analysis. And we'll talk about that later. Yeah, and that's something that I, I really want to get into the weeds here. Um, because the way that this is nested, I think, uh, hides a lot of concerning features about this um, this medication, that low CPS, and really draws brings into question this the FDA approval um, for all comers. I have I have no problem with the CPS greater than a five approval. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, the but the all comers I think is it raises some eyebrows. Okay. So um, PFS data is similar, um, shorter, but it's similar. You show uh, about a zero point, uh, a one, one and a half month PFS difference in CPS greater than five. And when you get down to uh, all comers, it's less than a month, 7.7 .7 versus 6.9 months. Um, the response rate for greater than CPS five is about 15% greater, 60% versus 45. And I would say that does track along with the response rate difference that you see with a third line trial. Right, so right. if you it's fifteen better than fifteen, twelve, fifteen percent of people in the third line setting would get some expect some kind of benefit from uh, immunotherapy who've got chemotherapy in the front line setting. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess what I'd say is like, yeah, what you're saying is like in these in this tissue type right. among all those people, probably like fifteen percent of people are, yeah. are 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 people who they just need that immune system unleashed. Right, right. Okay, uh, and so you know that that kind of tracks along with with what we know about this uh, disease entity. But it also brings into question about how useful is this in the first line versus um, keeping it in the second or later lines. Um, they do mention in the manuscript, and I did have to dig for this in the ESMO presentation um, in the, through the FDA data to find it, but they do mention in the published manuscript in the Lancet that um, they are unable to demonstrate a statistically significant benefit in the less than one CPS less than one in the CPS less than five populations. Boom. I knew in, it. In, response rate PFS or OS mm -hmm. so um, they acknowledge that uh, but and the last part of the results that I want to mention is that there is a 15% excess in grade 3 or 4 um, treatment related adverse events in the uh, immunotherapy arm um, they're more likely to discontinue they're more likely to die um, there was about I think I kind of 12 excess deaths in the IO arm um, but of course the, you know there, there's some questions about death attribution I think they found that there are more excess deaths due to chemotherapy not attributable to immunotherapy in the immunotherapy arm. And I'm not really sure how exactly you can make that accurate assessment um, at the bedside. But. Well, <laughs> when, you're, when you're a trialist on these trials and they ask you, is the death attributable to study drug? The answer, until proven <laughs> otherwise, is no, my friend. It is not. Yeah. And I'll see you at the next ad board. Uh, okay, go on. That's an interesting point. Um, okay, you're saying that did you actually make a spreadsheet and calculate the hazard ratio in less than five and less than one? Yeah, I did. Oh, you did? Okay, yeah, all right. It's coming, can, it's coming. Yeah, all you right. can post it on your... Uh, okay, because that's that's the first thing I'm thinking, because yep. you're saying it's not statistically significant. I actually bet less than one. My mental math is telling me it's going to be deleterious, but okay, fingers crossed. Let's see, fingers crossed. Okay, let's see what it is. Um, okay, so, so let's delve into the analysis. The first part um, that I want to talk about is this CPS scoring issue. So... The, the CPS distribution in the study, I would, I would best characterize as weird. Um, when they were setting the trial up, they, they estimated that the CPS greater than five population would be 35% of their overall study population. And they used that number to calculate how many patients they were gonna recruit, you know, calculate the power, all that stuff. What they ended up recruiting was uh, 60%. So almost double the amount of kind of a priori CPS greater than five population in, uh, ended up being included in the study. You can look at someone's face and tell their CPS, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do, I have a couple of theories, but I don't have a definitive answer. 
Um, I did look at all of the other studies that pre-exist here, um, and I talked to BMS and I talked to Agilent, just trying to get a sense of what the what's known about the distribution of CPS in general. And you nobody, te- you text him? How'd you get a hold of him? <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently, if you send the emails, people are very happy to talk to you. Set up Zoom meetings these days. Mm. Um, it's hard to get a straight answer, but what I did find was that the prior distribution of uh, CPS greater than one, which was easier to find based on the Checkmate 59, Checkmate 61, 62, um, Checkmate 32, and a couple of other studies, what was what we were able to find was about 40%, 38 to 40% of of CPS greater than one. Mm -hmm. I um, ran a kind of quick and dirty Z test Mm. uh, to see if you could, if you could find a statistical difference in the proportion of patients. Of course. Um, and P- PR test eyes data. <laughs> and what I got was P is less than 0.00001 for the CPS distribution that was found Shit. Uh, that's reported in this manuscript. So, so you're saying it's due to chance. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, guess, I guess you could say there is a chance. There's a chance. Uh, um, but it's, it's very, very unlikely that they were able to find, uncover this CPS greater than five population um, uh-huh. weighted in this study the way that they did. But I, I cannot speculate further about you know how how it was done so okay i'll i'll, I'll give one speculation yeah give a few possible i have a few possibilities you give me one yours. possibility okay. yeah. is that like i said at the beginning tps yes plus it equals cps equals tps plus immune cells so if you stratify your patients based on their tps before they're enrolled in the study if patients come in with a very low tps then you then you have a reasonable suspicion that their cps may or may not be high but if they come in with a high TPS already, that means if their tumor score is already high, then you know that their CPS is also. But high. they don't exclude people based on TPS. They they didn't say that they did. But, I see. But um, there there was about two thirds of the patients who were considered for enrollment that were excluded, and they don't give reasons why. Presumably, and again, giving the benefit of the doubt, presumably it's because of performance status. Okay, I have a couple questions. Yeah. Okay, possibility possibility one. Uh, possibility one is this antibody that they're using just lights up like a Christmas tree. Correct. What do you think? I think that's very possible, and I I really went down the rabbit hole here, too. Um, There's a couple of uh, PATH papers that compare the two antibodies that exist, 22C3 and 28A. They look concordant, but they haven't been really validated in um, the gastric or upper GI space specifically. BMS tells me that they'll have a manuscript out by the end of the year kind of demonstrating concordance. So, so they're saying that it's not going to be twofold higher. Correct. Okay. But even if it was twofold yes, higher, yes. that doesn't necessarily explain why so many patients benefited from this compared to the past, the entire past landscape that doesn't show such a strong benefit in the, in the population. Do you what see what you I'm mean, saying? Of the IO drug? Keep right. Going. So, so if, if we assume that for some reason that they were able to, that this new uh, antibody is just more sensitive, so it lights more people uh, up. I see your point. It doesn't yes. change the fact that the biology a lot of people yeah, responded, and they were able. The CPS greater than five population did respond, oh, and they did have a survival I see, benefit. I see. I see. I see. Um, you're not changing that underlying biology. You're just uh, you you can you can dress it up all you want, uh, and that would be an easy way to do it. But um, okay, they me, did see you get a real response. Let me summarize for the listeners. I guess Jeff is instantly in his mind. He's delineating two broad categories of reasons why this discrepancy may occur. One is artifactual reasons mm-hmm. of measure 
instrument, which is, I, was, I had a whole bunch of suggestions, yeah. like the pathologist is under pressure right. to upscore, the antibody right. lights up like a Christmas tree. I had all these sort of artificial reasons. And Jeff is saying that that entire class of suggestions has gotta be wrong because it's not just an artificial bump up in the number. These people are actually responding exactly. in great numbers to this. So it's not an artificial. So then the second category yeah. is a true biologic reason right. why you've selected more CPS. And in those things, I would put that, um, what are the ways in which you might get that? One, you actively sniff out people with low TPS or CPS mm -hmm. and you kick them out of the study. Mm -hmm. That would be very surreptitious and, and suspicious. Right. The other thing is that maybe some of the surrogates that we think have nothing to do with CPS or TPS actually do have something to do with CPS or TPS. For instance, maybe ECOG is tied to CPS or TPS. Maybe people with really poor, you know, maybe these are the creme de la creme of ECOG zeros. They're like sprinting. They're, mm -hmm. you know, run faster than I do, um, but they happen to have gastric cancer. And by selecting those people, what you're actually doing is enriching for high TPS uh, and CPS. You see what I'm saying? Yep. Like it's a true biological reason that there's something between physical function or any of the screening tests or IC that is linked to CPS, TPS. I see. I also looked at the, um, you know, the global distribution. Maybe they were able uh, to uncover yes. a, a hidden vein of high CPS enriched uh, patient population uh, in the yes. in the Andes or in Bulgaria or something. Well put. Um, yeah. But I couldn't find anything uh, anything that really led to that in a convincing way either. Um, in the manuscript, they really they they actually address this head on. They say this could be due to differences in patient biology and patient selection or other factors. It's it's kind of hand wavy, but they do acknowledge that this is unexpected. Um, but I, I do believe it truly represents uh, enrichment. Interesting. Now I'm going to have to think about that. How did they enrich for CPS? Mm -hmm. You think it's true enrichment? I do. My, I, you know, my gut always says it's a measurement error, but now you've pointed out that you think that the response is too good to be true. Okay, go on. Yeah. Go on. We'll think about that. Yeah. If any listener solves the conundrum, you will win. <laughs> Actually, I have nothing to give. I don't, we, have any, we don't even have a plenary session mug. <laughs> We don't have anything. Your name will be added to the plenary session website <laughs> and the show notes. We can include you as a, as a co-author on a manuscript about this. Are you going to write correspondence? One? I don't know. Maybe. Correspond I think you're too late for correspondence. Yeah, that's true. Lancet says basically like you have to send your correspondence. It can only be like 10 words and it has to be sent <laughs> within 10 minutes of reading the paper. Um, well, I guess I missed the boat on that. Um, so I, I the, the bigger point I want to make about this though is I worry that this distribution of CPS, these questions, and especially with the new approval, this is confusing to to even um, the most seasoned clinical trial uh, interpreter when you're when you're thinking about it with a patient in front of you. Uh, do you call up the lab and ask them what antibody they used? Do you um, petition your institution to use a different antibody? Um, do you uh, have the, it rechecked? If, if a CPS is three, do you have uh, a second interpreter look through to see um, if they if they might benefit um, from uh, if they can upgrade them to a CPS five or do you just give it to them anyways because the approval is now CPS agnostic? Ding ding ding! <laughs> <laughs> I think the reality is you open NCCN flowchart, you look, see it doth exist and doth give it. Oh, I have to say that the NCCN, even though this is FDA approved, the NCCN flowchart still currently says CPS greater than five for this population. So there is an area where they they differ at this point in time. The NCCN is more restricted than the yeah, FDA. Correct, correct, yeah. Interessante, interessante. You know, we did an analysis, frequency and level of recommendation of NCCN recommendations mm -hmm. beyond the FDA by Jeff Wagner and colleagues, which was published in JAMA, or BMJ in 2016. And we found that the NCCN on average extrapolated beyond the FDA. And only one instance where the FDA, where the NCCN actually was more restrictive. But now you're saying there's a second one. Yeah. 
Well, we shall see about this. I'm, 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 I guess I, I, don't dis, I don't disagree with you that that is the case, but I suspect that it won't last for long. Yeah. This NCCN is going to give it. So the one thing that I would have hoped that the FDA would consider when they issued this approval was maybe we can, we can check to see if the CPS distribution does, is truly representative of the general population in the U.S. at large. I think that would have been something that we could, uh, that's easily verifiable, and it can confirm how generalizable the study is for our overall population. You just pick five centers, yeah. and then you take the f- f- 50 consecutive yeah. patients and squirt this d- this uh, special antibody, 23D, Correct. what is it? 28.8. 28.8. You squirt the 28.8 all over it, and you look, oh, Jeff is so smart, because what Jeff is pointing out is that if, in fact, the FDA is giving a carte blanche approval in every histology, but if, in fact, this is enriched with high CPS, you have a huge discrepancy between this trial ITT population, intentional treat population, and the real world. And you're not going to get these outcomes of the real world. Uh, Let me make an analogy. So HER2 positivity in breast cancer is about 30%. We know that. If the makers of Herceptin were able to find a population Uh, where... 90% of HER2. Even 50%. Even 50% were to have HER2. And they were to run an analysis of Herceptin... Uh, plus or minus, you know, whatever, in that, in all comers, they would have shown an overall survival benefit in everybody also. And we would be giving Herceptin right now for HER2 negative patients. Exactly. So, um, I, and and I think that's what they've done here. Uh, A difference of 35 to 60% is, is a pretty striking difference and it's enough to weigh down the entire arm of the study. Um, and so, so we don't really know how applicable it is to your, your average run-of-the-mill patient. If the FDA can, can, can demonstrate or if someone can demonstrate that this CPS distribution is true and that a patient coming into my office has an a priori CPS greater than five uh, a chance of over 60%, I would, I would be happy. To, to administer this as oh, as but uh, but I, I'll, I'll put it I'll put a little asterisk there. Yeah. I think if this distribution doesn't reflect the general population, then certainly this drug will underperform in the real world. Correct. But if this distribution does reflect the general population, it's still possible CPS less than five actually is detrimental. Correct. Right. So yes. then you have to do subgroup analysis. Yeah. And and what you're really doing here, and as we showed, they they actually proved with statistics that it doesn't have a benefit in less than one and it's less than not five. statistically right. significant right. yes sure yeah. okay but i think uh and, yeah and but they, i want to show the interaction goes the other and way, they've yeah. also demonstrated that there's risks right there's oh, excess deaths there's there's uh immune related adverse events so if you can demonstrate that there are uh it's not you can't demonstrate a statistical benefit in this population in a large proportion of the population and that there's uh adverse events I, i'd say that's a dangerous combination good good okay um what else you got the second thing i want to talk about is the post protocol treatment of these patients mm, top notch what's <laughs> wrong with an eight uh, <laughs> percent well you know if you're if you're conducting a global trial you kind of have to go by uh what the what the countries uh, have available including q six week MRIs, um, which is what they how they conducted the study as well oh that's an interesting paradox was it mr or ct they said ct or mr Wow. So there, uh, by the way, which is brisk, would you say it's exactly. brisk? That, yeah, that's the point I, that's the point I want to make. I, I don't know if I've, I don't think any insurance company would authorize every six week, uh, um, SCT or MRI in any patient in, um, getting treated for these cancers today. I don't know how much I should delve into this because we have a paper that I think is in revise and resubmit on this question. So I'm going to, we'll come back to this, but I think Jeff is illustrating a paradox, which is in this trial, if you are enrolled on this study, you're being followed with scans at a frequency that'll make your head spin, that'll blow the budget. And yet simultaneously, you can't afford, exactly. uh, you can't afford Nevo, second or third line. Right. And, uh, and apparently after the trial result is published, you're gonna be able to afford Nivolumab. Right. So these are, these are all quite paradoxes. Right. So, so basically 38% of these patients went on to get second line therapy. 
um, and eight percent of patients in the chemo in the chemotherapy only arm got any kind of immunotherapy, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, uh, whatever. And um, that is different than what was the standard of care in the United States prior to April 2021, which was pembrolizumab was approved for, I guess it was for CPS greater than one, I believe, um, as a third line option. Yeah. And so uh, that showed, like I said, a, a 12% overall response. It was, um, you know, not great. But, but for, people were giving it. Right, people were giving it. And for a third line option for people who are performance status one, zero or one, uh, I would, you know, we would, we'd try that. Everyone would give it. Yeah, we would give it. Of course. Yeah. What else are you going to give them? So, so people were... Single agent ramucirumab exactly. after progressing on ramucirumab taxane. Yeah, oh, um, yeah. So, so people were giving it and people were seeing a response and patients were responding to it. Um, but I will use this opportunity to compare it to the Attraction 4 study, which is the exact same study, really the exact same study. They used a different um, chemotherapy doublet, S1, that's not available here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But um, they did not demonstrate an OS benefit. They only demonstrated a PFS benefit. Mm. But the reason that I speculate, and probably um, you would speculate too, Vinay, is that they had a much higher rate of second-line immunotherapy. Yeah. And this is when we, we've talked about crossover a lot on this show, and I don't really consider this crossover. No. This is standard of care. Appropriate standard of care. Appropriate standard of care. So if you're withholding appropriate standard of care, then um, you can't really generalize it to the general population. And fine, you could you could say that you can't, uh, approve this for um, you know Indonesia or whatever country that sure. that might have a difficulty with paying for some of these drugs or have have decided their, themselves that the risk or the cost isn't worth the benefit. But if you're approving it for the United States as the FDA is doing, um, then you have to think about how generalizable the study was connected to our population. A real plenard, my friend. A real <laughs> plenard. I see. You've learned. You've learned that. I, I, I say that all the time. And the other thing I'll add here is that I recently heard somebody say, and they're like, well, if we gave post-protocol care and there was no OS benefit, um, you know, you should still approve our drug upfront because there's a PFS benefit. But actually, that's the wrong interpretation. What that literally means is, is that there is no reason to give your drug first. You can achieve the same OS right. by sequencing the therapies. Exactly. And we used to do that. Yeah. In yeah. fact, your friend Sledge. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. The, uh, Doctor Sledge in the mentioned Sledge in, the, in the previous episode. Um, you and and what you're doing there is preventing some of the harms of and course. expense from um, some of those patients who you know are not going to benefit from it. The CPS one or CPS zero patients. Uh, you're you're preventing their harms from it. And there's a few downstream consequences that I think we could talk about too. What is this going to look like for the landscape of recruiting for clinical trials in the upfront um, GI cancer, upper GI cancer space in the future? Are you going to expect that every patient get uh, upfront uh, uh, upfront immunotherapy? So if you're conducting a second line or third line trial in immunotherapy, how is that going to how is that going to affect your treatment landscape? Interesting. No one no one no one can answer that. That's interesting. Um, so. I guess I, the manuscript mentions, the third point I want to make is, is about the safety signal. Um, the manuscript mentions that they don't find a new safety signal with immunotherapy mm-hmm. and chemotherapy combination. That's not really a big surprise uh, because this is a, a well-worn uh, combination. But I don't know if that's really a good enough bar to uh, make an approval like this because, like I said, you've demonstrated that there are patients who probably aren't going to be benefiting from this. 
And so um, yeah. even if you aren't finding a novel safety signal, that doesn't mean that you aren't exposing these patients to real risks and deaths. Why do companies, I always read this as like, like we did a new study of ibrutinib. It's like the 28th, the, the 300th study of ibrutinib. And they say, our study did not identify any new safety signals. Who the fuck thought you would identify a new safety signal on the 300th study of ibrutinib? We've given it to a million people. And now you, oh, I got a new one. Did you know it causes your big toe to cramp? No, you're not going to find it. What? This is a medical writer. They must have a conference where they pass these little pearls around, you know? Yeah, that's. I, I think that's that's an easy way to, to describe what's what you find in the study without actually um, giving being information. Yeah. yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's exactly what that is. Yeah. We didn't find anything new, nothing unsurprising. Correct. You know, like I drank a Coke. I've drank probably like a thousand Cokes in my life, and my nose didn't explode. So yeah. I didn't find a new no, safety no signal. No new safety signal. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the 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 reason I bring it up is I just want to caution. Uh, people who are starting to read clinical trials, you know, trainees, that that itself doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a safety signal. It just means that they didn't find a novel, uh, a novel. interaction that previously was undescribed, which probably would have caused a trial to derail at a much earlier point. The irony is when we do find new safety signals like VIT after J&J &J yep, and yep. myocarditis, <laughs> then we're like, oh, those don't, those don't matter. Those are really rare. And it's like totally less than a blood clot from DVT after OCPs, right? A total fair comparison, right? Okay, so that's when you find a real novel yep. safety signal. You don't care about it. Okay, fine. Fair enough. Okay, that's a good point. Um, so I think that those are the th those are the three main points that I wanted to make. Um, I think I, I what was the reaction to this? You said this in front of your oncology yeah. peers at Stanford. Yeah, I think and they slapped you. What did they no, do? No, no, no. I think people are um, are pretty. You know, like I said, people are optimistic about this space in the in the um, in, at baseline, right? Having a new medication therapy that would improve overall survival in this population is a big win. I think that the criticism um, could be limited uh, when you are talking about the way the trial was conducted specifically, but the way that the FDA interpreted this data and issued the approval, I think, deserves a lot of scrutiny. Um, the, the drug company, the way that they have outlined it is really to uh, isolate it to the CPS greater than five population. I will say that I'm learning as a as I go through my fellowship and learning more about the drug approval process. There's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes at the FDA where you know a company or a sponsor or somebody will approach the FDA and, and go over their statistical plan up front and say, "Does this look good? If I show this, you know, is this something you'll approve?" And the FDA doesn't want to go back on their word after they approve something. Sure. And so um, I, I wonder how much of the recent approvals that we've seen are a result of that process specifically, where um, you know you kind of have a I don't want to, it's not a, a backroom deal or anything like that, but it's it's an upfront kind of a vague statistical plan that ends up um, generating some data that you know if you look at it at face value doesn't really um, inspire confidence, but because of the previous agreement or whatever it is, gentleman's agreement, um, the FDA is kind of bound to approve something that they previously didn't. So in this case, if, if uh, BMS went to FDA and said, we'd like to um, propose that this be approved in all comers if we're able to show statistical benefit, and then they were able to weight the CPS greater than five population as they did, then um, you know the FDA doesn't really have a choice if they've already agreed to that. Yeah, so a helicopter's flying overhead. Let me wait a second. We're outside in sunny Palo Alto. You know, I must admit that I thought the weather in San Francisco was good, but this weather has been, <laughs> this is a really nice day here. You spoiled. You're spoiled here in Stanford. Yeah. No wonder. So spoiled. No complaints here. No wonder half the faculty doesn't believe in COVID. No, just kidding. <laughs>
<laughs> just kidding, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Now they they believe it. they have a different point of view. Okay. I thought this was hashtag zero COVID. Oh yeah, hashtag zero COVID. <laughs> hashtag zero COVID. Okay, wait. Um, what did I want to say about this FDA? Here's what happens: they go to the FDA reviewers, who are typically medical oncologists who are just out of their training, getting paid 190 big ones, and they say, "Listen, why don't you approve this checkmate 649?" And uh, you know, you know that in a few years you're going to come work for us as medical director or you're going to be, you know, some position in our company and we're going to pay you double your salary. Or you can be a big pain in my ass and ask for, you know, proper interaction coefficients and proving that it works in less than five. And then the FDA says, oh, well, we'll just take whatever you give us. It sounds like you're referring to uh, future jobs of uh, FDA hematology oncology drug reviewers published in the BMJ uh, by Bien et al. Yeah, that's a good. That was a good paper. <laughs> that was a good paper. I think that was one of the first papers that I worked on, um, and probably one of the first papers that you might have worked on with a trainee, because you were fresh out of training too, right? I was, yeah. but I had had trainees even when I was a trainee. That's true. I was a big trainee for the little trainees, but no. <laughs> but yes, you're looking for that project. That was a good project. But I remember what you told me at the time. You told me that Trump's conflicts of interest were so bad, yeah. and the administration was so bad yeah. that no one would care about conflict of interest and I said no Jeff people will care Jeff people will care and you said okay okay and then now here we are 2021 and I say to you Jeff I issue you a full apology <laughs> you were right people don't care and proof that people don't care is Vivek Murthy Vivek Murthy yeah. he's on the Dems yeah. and this dude was he stuffed his pockets with Netflix yeah. and fucking Carnival Cruise money and Airbnb his little face is on Airbnb saying that we we use an the, the right cleaners on your room. What what cleaner is the right cleaner for COVID? You know there's no such thing. I, I, I really, um, I, I stand by that because I think that there's something insidious about conflict of interest that really transcends political spectrum. I think that it really has to do more about looking to see who's taking care of who and what what your, what the overall job is. And it's it's quite easy to see how over the past five years, since we published that paper, um, there there's been an erosion of what the FDA FDA thinks its job is, um, and that's that's fine if they uh, if they have that charge or if they've changed their mission statement or something like that. But it's also a little bit insidious um, because it happens so slowly over time. There's not one person that you, you you have to blame for it, but change like that really comes from the top. And so when they talk about oh you know um, whoever's in charge is uh, you know. Who cares if they're talking about Goya beans or uh, whatever they're doing or, you know, uh, talking about chicken serving chicken nuggets at the White House? Well, that's just a funny joke. Um, I think that it does affect the day-to-day operations of the federal government, and you get these small little insidious in- incremental changes that end up having wide ramifications. I agree, um, and, yeah. and whether or not you really are looking more towards the federal government as a stepping stone to your next job, um, or if you think that or you just start, you know, start taking payments or, you know, trips or something like that, that, that really starts to erode the public trust in government. And the public the trust is going to be rock bottom. Uh, so to, to summarize this paper, and let me see if I got all these key points, mm-hmm. I would say that the points I think you've done a great job of illustrating are checkmate 649, tough population. We want something that works. Prior to this study, we're going to give chemotherapy first. We're going to give uh, taxane ramucirumab based on rainbow, or maybe we'll just give taxane alone if you don't believe rainbow too much. And then we're going to give checkpoint inhibitor third based on attraction two. Um, two. Uh, attraction two. This study comes along. They try to uh, use TPS. They switch along the way to CPS. They definitely show that for CPS five or above, 
you have a survival benefit to getting chemo IO upfront versus chemo with poor post-protocol therapy on the back end. Um, for less than five, it's heavily doubtful. I'm going to run the calculation when I get home, but I suspect it's heavily doubtful that it works under five. The FDA gives a blanket approval. Uh, the post-protocol care is questionable. So um, the net result is the oncologist, the patient, we really live in a world where we don't know. For somebody with a CPS score over five, you probably do at some point in your cancer journey need a checkpoint inhibitor. But when? Do you need it up front, second line, or third line? And the truth is, this study doesn't really answer that question. Um, it purports to answer the question. It will give market share to BMS, but it doesn't really answer the question. And there are all these reasons why we would doubt that. Um, there's some issues of the enrichment of CPS that seem fishy. Um, the antibody is something that the pathologist may not know they, they have or don't have this particular antibody. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting issues here. Um, fair summary? But that, yeah, and then in this CPS less than five population, I think the answer is is more clear based on the results of the study that they probably won't benefit from it. Um, but you will still have patients who are at home reading about this and and really think that this will benefit them. And I think that's the biggest disservice, yeah. um, that they, will, they, will, they might have a false hope, they might have um, the expectation coming into your visit. And if you, if you look them in the eye and say, you know, in, in this population, people live less than a year, and we're not going to give you this drug that the internet told you about. I think that's that's a that's a setup for disaster. Yeah, and and the, the other challenge we didn't even talk about was that no one has any idea what to do with the average person with this disease that comes in your office who's not ECOG one or zero. Right. They're ECOG two yeah. or three yeah. or four. I think I think the last thing I would say is that if you're conducting a precision medicine trial, you know, hashtag precision medicine or, or the the catchphrase or buzzword or whatever, I think. It's a disservice to the field if you are trying to demonstrate it in a non-biomarker-selected population, because what you're really doing is adding to confusion and confusing patients and clinicians alike, and you're not really going to benefit a proportion of your patients just based on the biological plausibility alone. The only benefit is the financial um, benefit that, that the companies and shareholders will have. Um, and I think the onus really is on, on these companies to make sure that they're targeting their population with exquisite precision if they're really going to market medications that are purportedly precision medicines. That's well put. Um, the last thing, the last segment, you said you talked about this. Okay, so I think you've done a nice job of going through this study. I think it's, uh, I, I, don't think, uh, I don't think I have found anything that you haven't discussed. Thank you. So you'll win the, uh, the plenary <laughs> session prize. I think that's a great discussion. It means I can graduate from fellowship. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good feeling. Um, what are my other ancillary points that I want to make? One, I think um, on a number of instances you talked about the challenge that doctors face, but I suspect that you know the truth is that the average doctor is not going to read this paper this closely. I think they're not going to read it anything close to this. I think the average journal club on this paper is not going to be nearly this close. I think one of the related issues that I, it's worth mentioning is that we live in an ecosystem where the majority of information about Checkmate 649 is from the company, right. um, one way or the other, from the company's representatives who happen to be the authors. Yep. Um, and so no one is going to hear this unless you listen to Plenary Session. And if you listen to other oncology podcasts, of which there are a few, you're also not going to hear it because I listen. I listened to a few, and I've never heard anything that I didn't know already. That wasn't really usually cheerleading. Uh, the next thing I'd say: the authors of this study, I don't know them. 
But I suspect they probably are not even aware of half these things, even though they are authors. Um, and that's a challenge because authors don't often have access to the data sets. Um, any comments or you want to let that go? Yeah, I, I actually, we had a conversation with BMS about this, um, just to learn a little bit more about the CPS distribution. And we asked them, do you, where is the data stored about the CPS for individual patients? Is it um, on each individual pathologist hard drive? And then they just kind of put it in a box, less than one, less than five, greater than five, greater than 10, or, or et cetera. Uh, and and the answer we got was really that it's central it's central review. There there it's there's a central review, but they don't they themselves don't have access to the actual numbers. Like is a CPS thirteen? Is a CPS thirty when it's greater than five? Um, that answer isn't available to the people that we talk to at least. Um, that when they're writing the manuscript, they really just have these uh, these bins they put it in even BMS that's that's what we've told yeah. I guess I guess I would say that the academic authors I suspect they don't know have right. access yeah, to right yeah. but the BMS I'm surprised that they don't have it they yeah. probably well maybe we'll see maybe they, they don't have the actual discrete numbers yeah um, okay then the next category of things I want to talk about is the FDA this FDA man it's uh, yeah. it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's over it's over I think um, the path we are on is uh, uh, with with ad aduhelm with uh, aducanumab um, Aducanumab has just drawn attention to what I've been banging on about for years, yeah. which is that the FDA is approving a lot of really costly marginal products where you really don't know if they help people. And I was thinking more about it. I was just thinking like, I think you two things go together. Okay, here are the two things. Healthcare is a human right. Or healthcare is not a human right. Healthcare is a market commodity that you buy on your own pocket. Or healthcare is a human right that we all need to give people. Okay, then the next thing is healthcare actually improves outcomes for people in, in well-done evidence in randomized control trials, or healthcare doesn't have to meet that bar. And you can have healthcare as a human right, but then what that means is you're taxing everyone to pay for other people's healthcare, so then healthcare has to actually improve outcomes for people. Or you can have healthcare as a market commodity in which you pay out of your pocket, I pay out of my pocket, in which case it's okay to have healthcare that we don't know if it makes you better or not. It's your money. But you can't mix and match. You can't cross these boundaries. And we live in a world where people want healthcare as a human right. They want us all to tax and pay for it, and then they're giving us aducanumab, mm. or they're giving us checkpoint inhibitor and frontline. Yeah, and that's just that's just a that's a, just a that's just a bad financial product that makes poor people poorer and rich people richer. I think I think a good uh, comparator arm for the trial that the FDA could propose would be um, you could randomize people to aducanumab, or to the control arm, which is you buy them a self-driving Tesla that takes them to all their appointments for their Alzheimer's disease over the next year and then see who has better outcomes after that happens. Aducanumab will get its ass kicked. <laughs> Actually, if you do aducanumab versus a caregiver for 56,000 exactly, a year, exactly. the caregiver will crush aducanumab. Yeah, yeah. yeah this, this is... So, and, and I think that's the real question um, that, you're, that you're, you need to ask because the financial uh, cost is just so much higher when you're, and when you're comparing standard of care, you're <laughs> neglecting the, the cost that you're adding to the system or to the, the patient themselves. I even think that even if the two tie in terms of OS and quality of life, right. giving the money to the caregivers better, here's why. When you give the money to Biogen, they're going to consolidate the wealth in the hands of people who just have like, you know, we have fidelity accounts with big numbers in it. And we don't even, we don't use that money. It's not, that's yeah. not real money in the economy. That's just capital. When you give it to the people who are like healthcare workers, you're actually giving it to like middle class people who are going to like right. buy more food and go on restaurants and go on travel. Yeah. And it's actually stimulating the economy even right. more. So actually, if you were like a, a, an economic analysis, I think it would be better to just give yeah. it to. That's, that's truly how you would redistribute the wealth in, yeah. this, in a situation like this. It's interesting. So, okay. 
Checkmate 649. Excellent summary. Um, I think not much left to add. Uh, this is great. Anyone interested in coming on? And if you can rival the performance of Jeff BN, you're welcome to. Uh, uh, email us at the podcast, podcast at gmail.com. Jeff, thank you so much for doing this. It was splendid. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.